You know, when we're growing up as kids, one of the most uh, common questions is, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? Everybody asks that. We, uh, we still ask that of our kids. We got a, a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old. We're always saying, hey, what do, you, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's getting more serious now, you know, that we're getting into, uh, into high school, and now we're thinking, hey, where, where are we going to go after this? And, and uh, that question becomes real. It's not like I just want to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, doctor, lawyer, airplane pilot, whatever that is. Like, hey, what do you really want to be? It gets more serious. So when you ask that question, kind of built into that question is this sense of you're not there yet. What do you want to be? I want to be a fireman. Well, we know you're not a fireman yet. I mean, you're four years old. So that, that you know, that's something you're going to be in the future. It, it just, it, it, it intimates that there's time involved. And then, you know, whatever, and the bigger the, the thing, uh, I want to be an astronaut, the bigger the wow, right? We're like, wow, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be president of the United States. Wow, you know, um, so there, you know, there's, uh, you know, I, I'm a previous piano player. If you say I want to be a piano player, okay, well, that's not that big of a deal, right? <laughs> but you know, when you say I want to be an astronaut, president of the United States, the, the bigger the deal, the bigger the wow. So when, as adults, when we're talking spiritually, the same question would apply to us: What do you want to be when you grow up? It doesn't matter what your age is chronologically because we're all growing up. And the biggest wow answer to that is I want to be like Jesus. I, w- I want to be like Jesus because this is the heart, the intent of God to the degree that he has predestined us to be like Jesus. Now, that's a tricky word in the Christian culture, predestination. And I, I could give you my view today on it, but I won't because that would just take two and a half hours. So, but, but there is a certain sense that God knows what's happening in the future, but because he knows it, does, it doesn't mean it's causative, that you know, I can know something's going to happen without causing it. But we won't get into that. It's a whole deep well of, of thought. Romans 8.29, we begin. For those that God foreknew, in other words, he's living in the future, he knows who's going to follow him, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. In other words, those that he knew were going to be Christ's followers, what he has predestined us, in other words, his strategy, his plan, was for us to become more like Jesus. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be like Jesus. God said, perfect, because that's my plan. That means more compassionate, more bold, more courageous, more uh, uh, selfless, all those things that we know Christ to be. He uses the word transformed because he understands that even though we become a Christian and many things happen in that moment, that our past is completely cleansed at that moment, our sins are forgiven, the, the, the fracture between us and God is now healed and restored. We're now set to be eternally with God. There are many things that happen, but in that moment, what we're not is instantly perfect. We're being transformed, and so we're told in, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, now that you have put on the new self... He's speaking to those who have just become Christians, just like the story that we heard with Ian. He has now put on Christ, the new self, which is being renewed. See, it's a progressive thing in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. There it is again. What do you want to be when you grow up? I've become a, I've become a Christian. 
I've got a new identity. I've got a new self. I put on this new self. But that new self is still being renewed progressively to look more and more and more like Christ. Some of my favorite people in the world are people who have just poured it out for Christ and they're in their 80s and 90s. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody probably comes to mind. Those, those Yodas of the faith. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you just love being around them because they, they look more like Christ than the rest of us because they've had more years to, to pour it out. They've gone through difficult things and they're being more and more uh, uh, formed and chiseled into the, into the image of Christ. We read in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this, being like Christ, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So we understand it takes time. We also understand this from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author, and I love this. We think of Christ as Messiah, of King, of Savior, of Lord. But look, Christ is also our perfecter, that he is perfecting our faith. What does that mean? Something that's the Bible often refers to perfection as like maturity. Like you got a, you know, a, a tomato plant out back. It's, you know, the tomatoes come in, they're, they're pretty green. And then you start to see them turn pink. If you've ever, you know, gardened before, you go, hey, they're turning pink. They're starting to ripen. And then there's that perfect place, you know, when you, you pick it and it's like, it's so delicious. That's like the perfect, we'd say it's a perfect tomato. It's a perfect stage. That's what the Bible often means to be perfect. Not flawless, but we're the, per he said, I'm perfecting, I'm maturing, I'm shaping your faith. It's, it's sometimes like a, um, an avocado. I don't know if you've seen that cartoon, but it's like, you know, there's a, 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 the anatomy of an avocado is like, it's, um, it's not ripe, you know, it's hard as a brick, you know, and you can't tell when you buy them, it's like a secret inside, like, you know, Cracker Jack's little prize inside. You know, so it's, it's like not ripe, it's not ripe, it's not ripe, it's not ripe, it, it's ripe for a half a day, and then it's mushy. You know, it's like you got to get the perfect moment to, you know, about once every two months, you cut into one, like, perfect, let's eat it all, you know? Christ is waiting for that. So let me review. What does God want us to be when we grow up? We want to, he wants us to be like Jesus. So far, we've covered two things that it takes. It takes time. It takes time. And it takes Jesus. That, that connection and rhythm with Christ to the stories today is so perfect. It takes someone saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling unforgiveness, but God, I want you, I'm coming to you. And then, as Ian said, it just took it from him instantly, surprisingly, miraculously, mysteriously. We can't even put it into words, but that's Christ being the perfecter of your faith, doing for you what Christ, what you can't do for yourself. That's Christ. But there's a third ingredient. And the third ingredient, I think, is tough. I think the first one is tough, quite frankly. Living in a microwave culture, 
of wanting everything so fast to, to wait to, to, for God to transform us, to have those habits that we're just trying to kick, we can't get past it, you know, being patient for God, that Jesus to perfect her, to kind of work those things out. But I think this third thing is the most difficult, and that's kind of where we parked today, and it's where we've parked over the last six weeks. And that is that if we're going to look more and more like Jesus, we need each other. And I would propose to you that you can't look like Jesus outside of getting close to other Christians. I had a friend, his name was Ricky. Ricky's died since, uh, uh, gosh, 10 years ago or more uh, from prostate cancer. Ricky was a, a bodybuilder. Uh, we were all shocked when he got cancer. But Ricky, man, he was a, he was a, a New Yorker. Man, he had that strong... He grew up on Mulberry Street in uh, Little Italy, and man, he just—he was like a just a tough guy. But he had a heart for the Lord. And uh, Ricky, he studied the Bible every night. I mean, hours. But he just couldn't bring himself to to go to to go to church. And Rick and I would talk about this over. I'm like, Rick, man, I, you, know, you know the Bible inside and out, and I know, I know the weakness of the church. I know people, and people are people, and people are always been people, and there's, you know, there, sure, there's hypocrites, and there's stingy people, and blah, 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 but it all, you know, we're all people. And it really takes getting around that, I believe, that to, to really become like Christ, because when you think about it, the easiest thing from, for Jesus would have been to operate from the home office, to just kind of manipulate things and find some other place, of, some other plan of salvation. I have no idea what that would have been outside Christ coming to earth, but you know, he could have come to earth even, died for our sins, like, hey, I'm not dealing with you people. You know, you're smelly and ugly and dirty and all that stuff. I'm just going to, you know, build a little castle in Jerusalem and, hey, no, you know, have guards and moats and, you know, draw bridges and everything. Nobody's coming in, Right. He just got right down in the thick of it, and he pictured for us, I think, what it, what it means. So today, I'm going to park on a story, uh, it's a story of David and, the, da- and, the, and the, the people that were around David. It's fascinating how David uh, was anointed king, and yet he wasn't king yet. That's the story. If you don't know the story that Israel wanted kings, God said not a good idea, but they, they wanted it to look like other countries and other nations. And so they appointed a king. He it went to his head. He became proud. God said, I've got to replace this king, Saul. I've got to replace Saul with a man that really has a heart for me, and his name was David. Now, David came on board, and the transition was... Uh, it was rough. Uh, not that you know, we would know anything about any governmental transitions that are rough. We know nothing about any of that. It was a rough one. And uh, Saul got to a point where he wanted to, to assassinate David. And then David, you know, being this future king, should have an army. But he didn't have an army. He was alone. In fact, he, he fled, he became a fugitive on his own at the, at the beginning of the story. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, if you have your Bibles, we're going to gravitate right around 21, 22, 23, 1 Samuel 21. We see that David has come to a place that's called Nob, N-O-B. 
and he went into this priest. David went to Nob in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, to Ahimelech, the, the priest. And Ahimelech trembled when he met him. It's odd, but then it's revealed right in the next questions why he was trembling. Ahimelech, this priest, trembled when he met David, and he asked a question that I believe is penetrating. When I read this passage and you know, reread it and reread it this, this week, I'm like, wow, the questions of the Bible are so penetrating. And I believe this question, even in the context of David's life, has a powerful question for you and for me. And the question is this, why are you alone? Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? It did not make sense for a future king to not have an army. For a king to ride up, it, it's almost if, if President Trump walked through the door alone, we say, where's the Secret Service, dude? What are you doing? Where's, you know, Air Force One or the, the Helicopter One or whatever they call that thing, you know? I mean, it would be weird for a leader to come unprotected. And a strange, if you read the story, he did have a few companions, they were, but it wasn't an army. In the same way, God would look, listen, at any Christ follower and the struggles and the challenges of life, and he would ask this penetrating question, why are you alone? How come no one is with you? Because if you are alone, you are the, a favorite of the enemy of God. Anybody has seen those shows, those wildlife shows, you know, where, you know, the jaguar or, you know, the, the, the animal that's got, you know, the big teeth and everybody's scared of, you know, it doesn't matter what animal, they're all, they're all kind of the same. And, you know, the, the, the guy that's narrating, his voice drops, you know, and the jaguar's coming across, you know, it's kind of weird and everybody gets excited and then you see, and then his voice kind of changes and, you know, the little lovely gazelle, you know, is kind of, and there's a whole, you know, herd of them and everybody's like falling in love with a gazelle, you know what I'm saying? And then, and then he springs and then, and then they're, and then there's like, uh, it's playing through my mind, can you tell? I hate that part of it. Like every nature show, the little gazelle gets eaten, right? And it's like, come on. And so, you know, and there's this big music and tribal music, and then the whole herd's going. And then there's this little one. Maybe he's got a little lame leg, or, you know, he's, he's younger than the rest, and the rest of the gazelle's like, see you later. And they're like, you know, and he's going off on a trail, and you're like, uh-oh, right? Because the jaguar sniffs out. The loner. If you, are, if you find yourself in that condition and in the privacy of your heart right now and you kind of raise your, your hand and say, yeah, that's me, God would say, why are you alone? Have you used the brokenness of other people as an excuse not to step in? Maybe you got burned. Whatever. You know, I, I got to say to you, I'm, I'm being loving, but I'm being for a big deal. You're going to get burned when you're, you're around people. I've been in the church culture for 36 years. I've been majorly burned. I have scorch marks. I have scars. I have super deep pain. 
but the Bible does not give me an out. And Christ said, how come you're not alone? David went from that place to a place named Gath. He had to act like a crazy man, a faked insanity, uh, because he was getting in trouble. And then we find in the next chapter, it's kind of where we're going to land today, he found himself in a cave by himself. I want to remind you that 93% of American men have no best friend. 93 out of 100. That is almost everybody. You can be in a church and be alone. You can be sitting right next to somebody and be alone. You can be married and be alone. David left Gath in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they gave a rip, and they went down there. That's what family does. And then he was gathered by this weird group of people. It was the in group because all of those who were in distress and in debt, <laughs> this was the in group. They were in distress and in debt and dis or discontented. They gathered around him and he became their leader. About 400 of them were there with him. 400 people who were deeply in debt, who were discontented, disoriented, dis cynical. They were everything like, if you were David, would you think, how would that prayer go to God? Hey, thanks. Um, <laughs> thanks for sending these folks to me. Boy, I could have picked a lot of others. I kind of wonder if Jesus felt that way. Like, God, thanks for Peter. Really appreciate having a loud mouth on the team. That's just perfect. Here's the thing that gives me hope, guys. Here's the thing that gives me hope. Some of the greatest leaders were surrounded by some of the most difficult people. Moses was surrounded by difficult people. Nehemiah was surrounded by difficult people. Jesus was surrounded by difficult people. Paul was surrounded by difficult people. And he said at the very end of his life when he said trial that after pouring himself out to so many people, getting beaten for Christ, being shipwrecked for Christ, that no one was willing to come and stand at his trial. And yet he still loved the church. It's encouraging for us, and it evaporates all of the excuses that we would say, well, I'm not going to church because of blah, 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 you know? That's in the Bible, by the way. It's in Greek. <laughs> so there's a few things here as we end this entire collection that I think is important, like how then can people, with all our brokenness and all of our stupidity and all of our selfishness, how do we grow together and how, can we make a, a covenant of heart and mind? Of heart and mind, because that's where it is. You can sign a piece of paper, it doesn't matter. But of heart and mind of saying, man, let's become together. Let's become like Christ together. 
Here's the first thing. I believe that we stand a chance of being able to do that when we recognize our shared debt, our common debt. You see, these guys came, and they were all in debt. Now, let me tell you something about ancient times in debt. When you were in debt in ancient times, it was, it was almost certain ruin. Because when you read even in the Old Testament, even in the book of Kings, you'll find that people had to sell themselves when they were in deep debt and often sell their children to get to just to be able to survive. So when these guys came, these 400 men came and they were in debt, what that was saying was that they just didn't have, you know, a few thousand bucks on a credit card. What they were saying is, my life is a thread from over. And there is no other option for me. May I remind you and remind myself that we are one thread from being over except for the grace of God. That we have a debt that no man could pay. And when we come to Christ, we are coming on bare threads of saying, God, forgive me like the prodigal son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And we come and we have this deep sense of debt. I'm in debt, you're in debt. You're in debt, I'm in debt. You're in debt, I'm in debt. We're all debtors to Christ. It evens the playing field. That's why Christ said, hey, let me teach you how to pray. Forgive us our debts. And I love how this version of the Bible says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It makes a big statement. Why is this important? Let me tell you why it's important. Because when we enter in to a community of faith and we understand that, man, I got my, I got my junk, you got your junk, and man, we're before Christ every day saying, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm saved. I'm eternally, uh, my cells are set for eternity, but there is not one single person in this room that can pick up a stone and throw it at another person. You're not ahead of me. I'm not ahead of you. I don't care what my title is. doesn't matter. Before Christ, my name is Steve. It's not Pastor Steve. Before Christ, I'm a child of God just like you are a child of God. We're all childs of God's of God, <laughs> not plural, only God's part. <laughs> we are all children of God. And what that does is that there's no pedestal. So when there is this thing, that thing that you may say, man, I don't like this, I don't like that, whatever. I don't like that about you either. So now we're on an even playing field, see? And when you have your brokenness, like big deal. Nobody should be shocked. Like, oh, I can't believe it. Because we're all before Christ. So what happens is when someone is off track, no one picks up a stone because otherwise Jesus writes your name in the sand and says, hey, who's the first one to pick up a rock? For that reason, let me remind us of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Let's say someone's caught in a sin. I say we go to their house and let them have it. I say we put a few signs up in the yard. I say we snub them. 
the holy snub. If someone is caught in a sin, hey, you who are spiritual, hey, you who knows the Bible so well, hey, you, you should restore that person. Say it with me, gently. You know why? Because God knows your stuff too. And then watch this. But watch yourself. Watch yourself, or you may also be tempted with that thing you're pointing a finger at somebody else out. You see, here's why it's important. I'm trying to think in my mind. I did a little research on caves in that area. Um, I'd like to say it's fascinating. It's really not. It's kind of boring. But these weren't caverns. They were caves. I want, to, I want you to, to think back. The first people that showed up was David's brothers. Do you remember the story of Goliath? Do you remember their attitude toward David? Hey, what are you doing here, you punk, basically? What are you doing here, you punk? Great, now I've got to live in the cave with these people. 400 men in a cave, and these caves weren't all that big. These are people who are already pretty cynical, and they are kind of, you know, not on the upper side of life, you know. In other words, things are not going their way, and now we're in a contained space. Each local church is like a cave, man. We've got, we're like together with all of our stuff. If we were sprawled out and everybody came into church and we had our own cubicle, life would be easier. But sometimes being in a close quarter is tough. I was in a flying cave a couple weeks ago. It's called an airplane. Boy, talk about a contained space where craziness is unleashed. I'm flying a lot these days. I'm like, people are nutty. Uh, you know, you never know what kind of animal is on the plane these days. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about animal. Like, hey, there's a pretty good-sized dog. I didn't know they let them on, you know. And so um, I was flying from uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Jim Childs is under this mission board, one of our, our previous pastors on a mission board called ABWE. And they had asked me to come up and do some film work of how they had impacted our church. And so I said, man, I, I'll come up in one day and then fly back. So I flew out of Sarasota, got the 6 a.m. flight, you know, which means you got to be at the airport at 5, which means you got to wake up at, you know, 3.34 a.m. to get there, you know, on, on time. So already we're at a deficit. You know, let's put a bunch of grouchy, sleepy people in a flying cave. And so, you know, so I flew up, did, did the thing, did the film work, got a plane, had to come back through Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and by this time, uh, the, we were reboarding Charlotte about 8.15 at night. So pretty long day already, you know, kind of up 3.34. Pretty long day. And so everybody's kind of tired anyway. So we get on the plane about 8.15. You know, then, you know, it takes a half an hour for, for nuttiness and boarding and all. The, you know, that's, that's crazy in and of itself. And, and out of the window, I could see these lightning flashes coming uh, along, you know. And the, and the pilot comes on. They're always, you know, I think... Uh, pilots and like, um, you know, PGA announcers, kind of the same, have that calm. I think it's a prerequisite. One of my friends here is a pilot was talking about it. It's kind of this calm, like, you know, hey, you know, if the, even the plane's going down, hey, the plane's going down. Uh, 
super calm, you know, everything's, uh, it's going to really be bad, I just want to let you know, so, yeah, and then, and half the time, by the way, it sounds like this, so I uh, just want to let you know, the plane's going to, so heads up, I'm like, what? <laughs> so, we get on the plane, see those lightning flashes. He comes on and says, hey, it's the captain. So, you know, we're, there's a storm moving in. We're going to try to get out, you know, before. I'm like, well, get, get a little more excited about it. Like, hey, we're in trouble. For me, I'd be like, hey, the storm's coming in. We're trying to get out of here, all right? You know, put a little drama in your voice. So at least we feel like you're with us, you know? So, you know, we're sitting there, sitting there, and it doesn't look good. It keeps coming in, roaring, and then he comes on and says, hey, we're, we're like, you know, 10 planes back. For, this is not going to happen. So we're sitting there. So we sat in the plane for an hour. Yeah, no, right, you can feel it, right? And then it's like, okay, we're just going to ask everybody to get off the plane. I'm like, oh, man. So then it was a pretty small plane. There were only two seats in a row. And, uh, you know, so behind me, uh, there was this lady who appointed herself as, like, you know, plane party planner. She was going to kind of coordinate the whole thing and then be the announcer, you know, uh, quite loud. And she was like, okay, everybody, looks like we're going to get off now. I'm like, who is this lady? All of a sudden, everybody trails off the plane. We're sitting in the waiting area. It's now about 10, 15. And, and every 15 minutes, she's going up to the desk and then, and then in the airport, hey, so I'll let you know, no new news, no new news. <laughs> get back on the plane. Finally, you get in, everybody's in by 10.45 p.m. I'm pretty tired by now, if I were to be honest with you. Just want to get back home, you know. And then they, they start pushing the plane back, you know. It's like, and it went like this. Mm, stop. And the pusher backer thing, it broke. I'm like. Okay, so there's only two seats. The guy beside me, you know, I don't know where, where the phrase came, cuss, cuss is like a sailor. But this was Popeye the sailor man. <laughs> I mean, this guy, I had learned, I hadn't heard some of those words since middle school. I mean, you bleep him. Blah. I mean, just like beat. I'm like, dude, it's not helping at all. So I'm, but I'm like, he may have a knife. So I just kind of turn. I got the party planner right here. I got a four-year-old behind me with her dad. She, with his dad, he's been traveling for three days from Israel. So, you know, he's on the edge. Finally, we get out. We're going to land in, we're gonna land in uh, Sarasota. Uh, now it's going to be midnight or a little after midnight. So when we come in, it was like fireworks. It was like a lightning show. And I thought, I don't know that we're going to land, right? And so I, when we came, we, we hit the ground, and I brought a picture of the weather pattern, and that storm <laughs> is heading north. And you can see the time frame up there. It says 12, 10 a.m., all right? So 10 minutes after midnight. Now the person that does this, they're not coming on the runway because <laughs> there's a lot of lightning. So we're going to have to sit here. So I want you to picture where this is. At 12.30 a.m., the next shot will show you how slow the, 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 the thing is moving, all right? So I'm sitting there. This guy beside me, is just gone nuts. I mean, he has called the pilot. I'm like, hey, if you're going to be angry, the pilot didn't cause the, you know, the weather. It didn't matter, man. So I got, I said, well, I guess, you know, I guess, well, you know, shut up. I'm like, okay, no problem. I shut up. <laughs> I'm working on my laptop. I just kind of keeping my business. Party planner still going. Uh, after one in the morning, I show you, uh, here we are. We're still right smack in the middle of it. About that time, 
uh, one in the morning, uh, I just, I thought nobody's going to believe me. So I, I brought the next little 11 second video for you. Uh, after. Take your deep breath. Yeah. So, um, anyway, so I got this combo going. Now, I've been up 21 hours. I feel like I've been on an international flight from, you know, Florida to Pennsylvania. I got, I got Popeye the Sailor Man. I got Plane Party Planner over here, and I got a crying, you know, and, and about that time I'm writing, I'm just trying to focus. I'm like, hey, I might as well just get work done. About that time, the party planner lady leans over my shoulder. And see, this whole time, I've become something that I'm not proud of. You know what in my mind? I'm thinking, in my mind, I'm literally asking myself this question. Hey, let's say she goes to the, to the bathroom. Like, would it be considered kidnapping, like if you, you know, leverage the door where she couldn't get out? I mean, those kind of thoughts are going through my mind, you know? The guy beside me, like, if I'm bringing something out of the overhead and I accidentally hit him with a heavy thing just to knock him out for a couple hours so I won't have to listen to profanity anymore, you know? So at any rate, I, I've become this thing. She leans over my shoulder. Now it's about 1.30 in the morning. You know, my eyes are blazing out of my head. And she goes, hey, are you a pastor? <laughs> I've been busted. <laughs> and here's what she says. I've been reading your work, and I think the word you're struggling for. <laughs> and you know what the word was? I'm not joking. She says, I think it's distracting. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> you're right. It is distracting. <laughs> Crazy, right? I feel like <laughs> I just had this picture of what it's like to be in the body of Christ. That when you get in, you make a covenant, there's a sense, certain sense like, hey, we're here. And you got somebody that's crying and somebody that's cussing and somebody that's overbearing. And you're there and you're tired sometimes. And then Christ looks at it and he says, I love this. Crazy enough, he says, I love this. Because you're all nuts. You're all debtors. And we're in it together. You see? Then we get a chance to become something. How can you do that when you fly a private jet? You see what I'm saying? Doesn't happen that way. It's no excuse for sin, but it's no excuse for intolerance either. You see how that works? Here's the second thing. Um, I literally sat there and watched this young man's film today, Ian's film. 59 years old, 36 years a Christian, and it made me better. It made me better. It ran through my mind all those little things that people that you got still hung in your head that you don't like about the person. And out of the out of the mouth of a of a, a teenager, I'm like, mm, I need to do better at that.
Thanks for making me better today, man. By being transparent. Watch this. I believe that in a group of people, those things that we do better, those things, those moves like this, then we share them, they inspire us. They inspire us to be better. Now, some of you know my, my background is music. There's a phenomenon in music. I think it's the same thing in sports as well. There's a phenomenon in music in the sense that when you play with an excellent musician, it's a phenomenon. You're playing. It's suddenly like there, there are times I've played with, I mean, world-class musicians. And I, I'm like, dude, I am playing like, like crazy better than I've ever played before because they elevate you. They elevate you. It's part of belonging and becoming together. It's, it, it's not that we're all just all in debt together, but it's also when you hear a move like that, when somebody makes a great play, you're like, man, you're really good. Man, I can play. And, and that's part of becoming together. Watch what happens. Let me read this story in 2 Samuel chapter 24. You, so they're still in this cave. Saul's the enemy here. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. He went in to relieve himself. The Bible's honest. And David and his men were far back in the same cave. What are the odds of that? The men said to David... This is a day the Lord spoke about when he said to you, notice how people use the Bible for their own advantage, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. In other words, they're saying, hey, this is your opportunity. Saul's up there basically relieving himself. We're back here in the cave. You could just reach up right now. He's right in your reach and kill him. This is your chance, David. And David, watch this. Then David crept up like a Navy SEAL unnoticed And instead of killing Saul, he cut the robe, a little bit of his robe off. Must have been an incredible warrior, by the way. But then after that, he could have killed him, but he didn't. He's going to cut it. And later on, he goes, hey, guess what? I could have killed you. He showed him later in the story. But watch this. Afterwards, David was conscience stricken. The Holy Spirit had convicted him. Hey, dude. He was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of, of Saul's robe. And he said to the men, I blew it. I blew it here, guys. The Lord forbid that I should do anything to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. He respected the position of the king. In other words, he did something noble. See, these 400 men, you read the story, they became mighty warriors of noble character. How do you think they did that? By reading a manual on how to become noble? No, they watched their leader do something that was God-driven. And when we're around, I can look around this room in every section. I'm looking at some of you that have done something that is so incredible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up my job as a high school student. I'm going to start a 180 house for the sake of others I'm willing to leave. Wow, way to go. Because you inspire the rest of us. People that are, that are stepping out and saying, man, I'm doing, man, this is how we become better. We have musicians in the crowd that play and they're like, wow, I want to be like that. We have a, a young man says, wow, I want to be like, man, that's awesome. 
Some of you have stepped up to the plate and said, man, I hear, I know this mission, man, I want to sacrificially give. Thank you for that, because it's like, man, what a selfless act that was. So many acts that make us better. Paul said, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, do these things. It's imitatable. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing and go solo commando, but let us encourage one another. All the more as you see the end of the runway coming, the day approaching. Finally, I'll say to you, I think we become better not just because we're common debtors. We become better together because we see people do great things, sacrificial things, and it inspires us. But I do believe that we become better together because we have a common mission and a common enemy. Those things, I believe, those David, those men became warriors because they were being unfairly treated, unfairly pursued. Saul had lost his mind. He had lost his heart for God. And they, they, they came together and said, man, let's be on mission together. Because listen, when we are on mission together, then all of those peripheral things seem ridiculously silly. How many days and weeks did they not have a bath or a shower to clean up in that cave? That didn't matter because they were on mission. Ephesians 6 verse 10, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. Watch this. For our struggle... Not an individual, but for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Man, we're in the battle right now. I'm sorry, what color did you think the chairs ought to be? Like, who cares? You see, those things become minimized. They become ev- evaporated, vaporized if we're on mission that's why 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ because no one serving as a soldier gets involved in stupid stuff, in silly stuff, civilian stuff, because he wants to please and become like his commanding officer. We're going to pray together as we end today. I want to again ask you to pray to, to come sometime this week, to come to one of these meetings to say, I want to be in covenant and heart and mind. Really, this is our church, our family, our mission that God has given us together. And I believe with all of my heart that you'll never become what Christ wants you to become if you're flying solo commander. Does that mean you can love God? Certainly. Absolutely. You can know God? Absolutely. Will you become like Christ? Not as much as you will at together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, God, for who you are, for who you've called us to be. Put simply, Father, we want to become more like Jesus, and we can only do that over time. We can only do that through the perfecter Jesus working in our lives as we are in rhythm with him. But clearly, Father, on every single page of the Bible... People become more like you because they're around people. They're in the midst. Maybe there's some people sitting right here that have something against one somebody else. 
Maybe it's time to remember, be reminded that they're common debtors. Maybe they have something that happened in this church. Maybe something I said. Maybe something somebody else said. Their group leader said. Their disciple maker said. Somebody at the front desk said. Who cares? Maybe that thing is stuck to them. What a great opportunity to say, God, I forgive my debtors because I'm asking you forgiveness of my debt. Father, help us to focus on those things, those, those great plays that people make that make us better. Certainly we can look at the glass half empty and see all the fractures of a church, any church. But at the same time, there are great, great movements of God happening. Help us, God, to get our eyes on that, on those things, those things that would inspire us to play better than we've ever played. And as we close, God, this conversation and this collection, help us to, remind, to, to, to remember today, God, that we are on a battlefield. That this is not about songs and sermons. This is about a kingdom, a movement of God that we've been invited to, to fight, to press ahead. Sometimes to fight with love, to fight with uh, gentleness, to make a difference, to be different, God, than what we've been taught all our lives, to be me-centric. And because we have a common mission and a common enemy, God, and a common goal, all of those peripheral things should be miniaturized. So, God, are there things in our mind that are, that are bigger than they should be in light of the mission? Thank you for this, this week, God, uh, coming up where we all get together as a church to put our hearts and minds in one place so that we can do greater, even greater things for you. And so, Father, would you do something that we cannot do ourselves? Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, would you, God, take our hearts and our minds and even more deeply unify us for the cause of the kingdom, the movement of Christ? We pray this, I pray this, God, in Jesus' name, amen.